is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. On the menu for today, former President Trump out firing up his base. If I run and if I win, we will treat those people from January 6th fairly. We will treat them fairly. And if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons because they are being treated so unfairly. Well, the former president encouraging his supporters to hold large protests in Atlanta and New York if prosecutors in those cities take action against him. We'll go in depth in whether Mr. Trump is helping or hurting his cause and if what he is saying mounts to trying to incite a riot. Researchers in the U.K. have found a more subtle way to get people to eat less meat. The suicide of former Miss USA Chesley Christ is bringing attention to the mental health issues that seemingly popular and successful people deal with on a daily basis. People often reach out to crisis centers when they need help. Popular one apparently sharing the personal info of people that it's trying to help. The FDA approves Moderna's COVID vaccine officially. What's it mean for vaccine uptake? And an L.A. County supervisor now questioning the mask rules following the NFC Championship game and pictures of all the lawmakers and celebrities without their masks on. And then uh, if you want to go to the Super Bowl, good luck affording the tickets to go to the Super Bowl. It's only a few thousand. Yeah, it's like seven grand for the super far right corner nosebleed. But hey, you can say you went and then you put it on Instagram and everyone's like, wow, look at you. It's so cool. Yes. And then don't eat for a month. (laughs) Let's let's start with former President Trump and his comments over the weekend. Sean Walsh is a Republican strategist and former White House staffer. Sean, thanks for being with us. Uh, Rather kind of remarkable comments from Mr. Trump, although, of course, he's not exactly unknown for making remarkable comments. But this notion that, uh, again, the election was rigged, again, that he won and Joe Biden lost, and again, that uh, the people who stormed the Capitol and mounted an insurrection are the ones who are being treated unfairly. What do you make of all that? Well, Republicans just groan. And you actually saw, I I thought, encouragingly, a number of them, including Governor Sununu from New Hampshire and others in Washington, just call them out on it and say, this is just nonsense. Just stop. And the bottom line is, right or wrong, some people went in to cause trouble at the Capitol and break things, and other people got caught up in it. But You know, you do the crime, you do the time. And Republicans just want the people to be punished who broke things and hurt people and get on with it. Because we've got a great 2022 election coming up. Inflation is up. Crime is up. Quality of life issues are not doing well for most Americans. Homelessness, dirty streets, right track, wrong track. It's all trending really positive for Republicans. And Mitch McConnell uh, has basically said, and Kevin McCarthy, one minute we spend talking about Trump is just a minute wasted for us getting the House and Senate back. Well, right. So he could have gone up there and made a political speech and said all the things you just said and said, look at what terrible shape we're in and uh, I'm going to get us out of this. And instead, we got the fear, we got the intimidation, we got the division speech. But if he's the leader of your party still, uh, is this just what it's going to be next go round? Well, you make an assumption that I don't agree with. People say he's still the leader of the party. I think right now Mitch McConnell and McCarthy are the leaders of the party. We've got a great bench uh, for future presidential candidates. Uh, Any one of them, I think, can certainly take on Joe Biden or or Vice President Harris and do well. So the bottom line is, from a Republican perspective, you want to focus on the future, not the past, and you just hope Donald Trump kind of goes away. 
The problem is, I think the investigations that are happening, particularly in the Southern District of New York, have President Trump very, very concerned. And I think the closer that they get, the more vitriol he puts forward. If you're a Republican, though, you have to pay somewhat attention to Trump insofar as that these elections are generally held in very close races. So you win by one, two, three, four points. If you get a massive Trump base that comes against you, it can actually cost your race. So you just hope he goes away and you hope you can ignore him. But I just think Trump's going to want to play in these races. He's going to want to say, I elected a senator or I elected a member of Congress, and he's just not going away. So Republicans are going to have to deal with it one way or another. Okay, but you say, you know, looking at the future, and I wonder whether or not Mr. Trump's remarks over the weekend act as a suitable diversion about the future, because while he's making all of these remarks about uh, having protests in, in Atlanta and New York and doing all kinds of other things and how he really won the election. The fact of the matter is, as you know, uh, Republicans in what is it? I think it's 18 states now have been very successful at either, uh, in effect, from a Democratic point of view, stacking the deck uh, at the state level or trying to stack the deck so that in a 2024 election, if we have a situation similar to the last one, it might come out to this time favorable to Republicans, whether or not they win. Well, I, look, I'm not sure I agree with that, that they're trying to stack the deck from an Electoral College perspective. I mean, you've got redistricting that occurred. It happens every 10 years. The Democrats well, you have to win it. But you have, wait, wait, wait. But you have redistricting, yeah. but you also have the effort. There's, what, a half a dozen or a dozen uh, people who are trying to vie for the position of Secretary of State in different states, which would have the power to do what didn't happen the last time, overturn that state's electoral vote. Well, I, I I just don't buy into conspiracy theories. So a secretary of state has laws that he or she needs to abide by in their own state, and there are federal election laws. And so I just don't think that you can, you know, put up a secretary of state and they're going to steal an election. I mean, as silly as some of the stuff was in Atlanta, calling up an election official saying, find me 11,500 votes, it didn't work then. I don't see it working in the future, and I don't see a person who literally has a constitutional obligation to obey the laws of their state and the federal government not doing that. I just don't see that. And again, I work for President Reagan in the White House. I work for President Bush. I don't think the world is so fundamentally changed that we're now a third world, you know, despot where you can buy a secretary of state. Sean Walsh, Republican strategist, former White House staffer. Still to come, former Miss USA, Chesley Christ was living a highly successful life for somebody so young, took her own life on Sunday. We'll look into how people seemingly, you know, so successful can suffer from mental health issues. Also, an L.A. County supervisor says she wants a reevaluation of the COVID policies following, um, you know, the game itself. I win. It was really hard to watch the TV and not to find someone. I mean, no one was wearing their masks. You could pick them out. It, like, it was usually the guys on the sidelines because yes. they were like NFL workers. And then pretty much nobody else. And so then, we'll and talk then, to her. Then, of course, there's the now infamous photograph yes. of, of both the governor and Mayor Eric Garcetti. Yes. Uh, Magic Johnson's um, Instagram account. Yes, but yeah. they only they only did it quickly, they said, mm-hmm. to take the yeah. photo. Right now, though, calls by former President Trump for people to protest if prosecutors take action against him brings up memories, of course, of January 6th, 2021. And that raises the question whether Mr. Trump is breaking the law by calling for people to take action. With us is Gene Rossi, attorney and former federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of Virginia. Gene, thanks for being back with us. Um, Is he crossing a, a line? Is there a line when he stands up there, Mr. Trump, 
and says, if prosecutors do anything, you know, bring charges against me and presumably, I guess, uh, maybe even members of his family, you guys need to take to the streets and, and do whatever, I guess, you do when you take to the streets. Well, that is, uh, first off, I thought you were going to have me on to talk about the Los Angeles Rams because my <laughs> my son was on the pit roster with Aaron Donald back in the day. But a bait and switch. But let me ask you a question okay. on, a serious, <laughs> on a serious note. I knew that would get you a laugh. On a serious note, um, I'm not a big fan of Mr. Trump, and uh, but I will say he's engaging in um, extreme political rhetoric uh, that is probably protected by the First Amendment and Supreme Court precedent. Um, but he is appealing to the base of his shrinking base by saying he's going to pardon people uh, on, for the January 6th uh, uh, events. But regarding uh, calling out his followers, however shrinking they may be, uh, to do something if he is indicted, I think that's just rhetoric. Uh, and there's not a connection between his comments and any action yet. Now, as he gets closer to, say, a trial or something like that, and he holds a rally and he asks people to go to the courthouse and raise holy you-know-what, then that could cross the line from protected speech to uh, inciting violence. But I would say right now he's okay, but he is engaging in um, inflammatory rhetoric that uh, for him, the First Amendment, I think, provides him protection. Is he walking right up to the line, though? Because if you know <laughs> that similar language has the potential to cause violence and you're saying something that's kind of along the same lines that you said last time and we saw what happened last time, well, then, you know, anybody should be able to to see that, you know, this could happen. Well, let me tell you this straight out. I was a prosecutor for 27 years, and if I were at the Department of Justice or in the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., and I have the facts as I see them uh, that Donald Trump had that rally right in front of the White House, gave that extremely inflammatory speech. And there is evidence to point that he and his minions and his flunkies uh, inside and outside the Justice Department in the White House uh, aided and abetted those people who attended the rallies, the main ones. Uh, I say he came close to satisfying all the elements of insurrection and sedition. Game over, end of story. But will the Justice Department go there or the U.S. Attorney's Office go there? Not yet. But the quasi-grand jury that is gathering evidence, a lot of evidence, is the January 6th Select Committee of the House, and they are doing what the Justice Department is doing, and that is looking at Trump and his minions in the White House way before January 6th, encouraging and aiding and abetting uh, the rally and what happened at the Capitol. Gene, so let, let, but let, is, me, let me go back, though, for a minute to yeah. his comments this, this weekend. Uh, could one make the argument, based on any law anyway, that his comments about, you know, having protests and all that, if prosecutors were to do whatever they may end up uh, doing, can't you make the argument that he's trying to intimidate prosecutors, which might have an effect that is not possible to really discern in the future. It's always hard to prove a negative. Could you make the argument that he might be having a freezing effect on those who might be inclined to take legal action against him, but might have some second thoughts now? 
No, you can't take legal action. I'll give you a couple of good examples. I was a big supporter of Bill Clinton. And uh, when he was being investigated by Ken Starr, who I thought was absolutely corrupt, um, uh, Bill Clinton's uh, legal team and his supporters uh, made some very inflammatory comments about Ken Starr's office. That's just part of the process. And, and just because uh, prosecutors are criticized, and I was criticized, I received death threats. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, much, it's much shorter than a criminal prosecution. It doesn't satisfy the elements of a crime. Is it unseemly? Is it untoward? Is it un- ill-advised? Yes. But I don't think it's a crime if prosecutors are um, vilified by potential targets. That, to me, is not a crime. Now, if there's, if there's overt acts that there's witness intimidation and destruction of evidence, that's a different thing. That's obstruction of justice and witness tampering. But just saying that the prosecutors are corrupt and uh, they're, they're after me and they're racist and this, that, and the other thing, yada, 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 uh, as they said on the Scheinfeld show, <laughs> that's not enough. That's not enough for a crime. Gene Rossi, attorney and former federal prosecutor, Eastern District of Virginia. Coming up, popular crisis line is being criticized for sharing personal information of people it's trying to help. And how expensive are Super Bowl tickets right now if you go online? Well, here's a hint. You could probably buy a really good car. (laughs) Right now, though, researchers in the U.K. found they can get people to eat less meat by slanting the menus toward plant-based meals. Discovered when three of the four options were vegetarian, nearly half chose the veggie meal, compared to only 12% when three of the four meal options were meat-based. Francis Largeman-Roth, registered dietitian, author of Feed the Belly, The Pregnant Mom's Healthy Eating Guide, and co-author of the best-selling The Carb Lover's Diet Cookbook, Thanks for being here. So, yeah, I guess it makes sense. If you slant the menu, you have the options there. People might uh, go to the veggie uh, section. But Charles was pointing out before we got on uh, the air here for this segment, he said, how many people, what, got up and well, left yeah, the restaurant? Right. I mean, you'd have to, right, you'd have to know <laughs> how many people looked at the what menu. What if I don't want any of this? Yeah, and they said, no, nothing, nothing here. And they got up and left. <laughs> Well, certainly, if you're going to a steak restaurant, you you definitely want to see some meat on the menu. But I think what this shows is that if you make the options more available and make it make it feel like it's just, hey, this is just, you know, part of what we normally eat, then people are more likely to choose those options. And I think it's just also taking the stigma out of ordering the plant-based menu item or the vegetarian menu item, which is usually just uh, you know, a pasta dish or a glorified salad. So I think it's great. Uh, I think it's a great way to do this, to get people to eat less meat. And especially in the UK, I guess they're considering a meat tax. So this would be a much better option than that. Yeah, I guess there's a couple of ways of thinking about it or, or doing it, right? You could literally slant the menu and have fewer meat options and more veggie options. And just luckily draw means people might pick the veggie stuff. But then also, what about just the way that they're presented? Like you said, some of them are marked, here's your vegetarian dish. It's this pasta. And that doesn't sound super exciting. But, you know, if in your description you're saying, or you have, you know, the portobello mushroom burger and you describe how great it is. Yeah, as opposed maybe to, somebody thinks, minute, as opposed, hold on, you're just going to be the anti-veggie no, yeah, person because, for the whole segment. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> because you're suggesting that what the alternative is to say here's this beautiful vegetarian dish, or you can have a chunk of meat instead of saying <laughs> is that it? instead of saying here's a steak or here's your veggie option, say here's a delicious vegetarian meal. Maybe someone's going to try it yeah. and like it. 
Right. Make them all sound <laughs> equally good. And I think, you know, look, we're, we're in a climate crisis. We need people to eat more plants and fewer animals. Um, so I think this is a, a great option for doing that. Well, but that, that presupposes that there's something wrong with eating meat and it gives a stigma to eating meat. I mean, you know, nobody should probably eat anything to to exclusion of something else. But the notion that there's something wrong with eating meat, so you have to slant the menu to get people to wean away from it, I don't understand what the science is behind that. Well, I think we're looking at the environmental impact of raising animals, and it takes a lot more natural resources to raise a cow than it does to raise a crop of rice or wheat or soybeans. So, you know, in, in terms of uh, dwindling reserves of water and good soil and things like that, we have to really think about the choices that we're making. And if it means a little less meat on the plate and some more plants, I think that that's, that's what we have to do. Instead of, you know, every meal has some sort of meat-based protein, right. then you can just kind of shift a little bit here and there. But you can still have your steak dinner. No one's trying to take away steak and baked potato. Definitely not. <laughs> good. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> right. Okay, that is uh, Francis Largeman Roth, registered dietitian and a couple books, Feed the Belly, Pregnant Mom's Healthy Eating Guide, and The Carb Lover's Diet Cookbook. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Chesley Christ was seemingly living the life a lot of people would want. Former Miss USA entertainment correspondent for Extra was an attorney looking to reform the U.S. criminal justice system. She was doing all this only at the age of 30. Yet, her life came to a tragic end on Sunday in New York City when she died by suicide. Now, this leaves many people wondering how someone so successful at such a young age could be struggling with mental health. With us is Dr. Alfie Breland-Noble, psychologist and founder of the uh, ACOMA Project, which helps communities of color address mental health issues. Dr. Alfie, thanks for being with us. So, you know, when people hear about these sorts of, of tragic stories, uh, they do tend to look at the person and say, well, you know, in, in her case, she was young, she was beautiful, she had money, she had success, at least in, in a, a career path, um, and yet apparently decided that whatever her demons were, they were too many. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think everyone scratches their heads in these moments. And I think the thing to remember is that, you know, while we all bring individual differences to our lives, that, you know, everyone's experience of their mental health is unique. So at my nonprofit, the Acoma Project, we always talk about optimal mental health, and it looks different for every person. And mental health doesn't care what the outward trappings of your success are. Um, mental health, you know, it, there are biological components, there are environmental components. And so I think we just want to be compassionate and think about this young woman may have been struggling for quite a while. It, it's rarely something that's really abrupt uh, when people die by suicide. And is that why we on the outside have such trouble because we don't take that next step? We just look at, you know, the, um, the, the, the lifestyle or the Instagram or the job and we project this happy life upon them because we think those are the things that are supposed to make everybody happy. I think you're right. I mean, I think you nailed it. I mean, she was in, an incredibly beautiful and incredibly bright, a young woman. And you know what we all say, she has so much going for her. And I think that what we forget is a lot of times for anybody, not just this young woman, what we see on socials is curated. So a lot of people are not showing the difficulties and the struggles. Some people do, but not everyone. And so I think 
you're absolutely right. We assume that because, you know, we see something on the surface that that's the whole story. And rarely, if ever, is that the whole story. And and is that sort of thing compounded, perhaps, by uh, a person like like her? Uh, maybe she was sending out signals. Maybe there were things that she was confiding in people, but nobody really wants to believe it's that serious. I think you're I think you're absolutely right, because think about it. If you're a loved one, a, a best friend or, or someone in that young person's life, I personally have a childhood friend, um, someone I grew up with in my social circle who died by suicide in his uh, mid 30s. And I think what we look at, we want to believe that, yes, that person's fine. And I think sometimes we and I would never want to blame anyone. Sometimes we don't know what to look for. And sometimes people do a pretty good job of of wearing a mask so that they don't burden other people. Because when you're struggling with depression and anxiety and it's severe, you don't want, you know, you don't want to burden other people. And the one other thing I'll say quickly is you all shared that she worked uh, on criminal justice reform. That's a heavy burden. She was a multiracial black and white woman. And so, you know, there are probably some connections somewhere in her life to to those really serious issues. and, And that can weigh very heavily on a person. So what can we do a better job at when it comes to these conversations, you know, if someone does open up a bit? Because, you know, we can take the other side of depression and and we'll do anxiety. And, right, the worst thing you can tell somebody with anxiety is, what are you worried about? Calm down. Like, it's not always a thing. It's a state of being. Don't tell me to calm down. I can't right now, but hopefully I'm working on it. You, you, you all are, are spot on. And I, and I love the way that you framed it so that people do understand when we say things like that, I think we think that we're connecting with the person and saying, you know, it's okay. And that's not what the person who's struggling hears. What they hear is we're minimizing their problems. I think sometimes uh, in terms of what can we do better, we can raise our own awareness and consciousness of what mental illness is. How does it show up? How might it look different for different people? Because it doesn't look the same in everyone. So if you know what signs and symptoms are, maybe you have a better opportunity to notice those things and recognize them in your loved ones or even in yourself. And you can try active coping to take care of yourself, but also provide that loved one with tools and skills and sometimes just your presence to support them and let them know they are not alone. Do you find uh, from your own work that you have situations where family, friends, for example, um, they're afraid, they may suspect that somebody, loved one, a friend uh, is, is thinking about suicide, but they're afraid to bring it up because they have this notion, which I think is a myth, and correct me if I'm wrong, that if you talk about it, it's going to cause it. That's exactly right. That That is a widespread idea um, that's not accurate. And I think the best thing that we can do in those situations is be direct and in a very loving way, say to our loved one, are you having thoughts of hurting yourself? Clinically, one of the things I was trained to do that I think has been super helpful for me professionally and personally is to say something like, is there any part of you that doesn't want to be here anymore? Because sometimes it's not the person's whole being is like, yes, I I don't, I want to die. It's just a tiny part of them that just doesn't want to feel the pain. So if you give them an opening and say, is there any part of you that's thinking about it? That can be the gateway to allowing them to breathe, sigh and say to you, yes, I am. And then you can start asking other questions about, do you have a means? Will you be safe if I leave you here alone? And if you hear anything that doesn't sound okay to you, what I advise people is that's the time to take your loved one by the hand and say, we need to go to the ER because we need you to talk to someone because I want you to be here and I love you um, and I don't want anything bad to happen to you. Okay, two quick points, uh, Dr. Alfie. How do people, if they want to reach your organization? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. So social media is easy for the young people. 
Acoma Project, A-A-K-O-M-A Project, one word across all socials. And then they can find us um, on the web, same thing, acomaproject.org. And you can follow me at Dr. Alfie. It looks like Drowfy. That's what all my kids' friends call me. <laughs> okay. And also, if you're struggling with mental health issues or having suicidal thoughts, you can also call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That number is 800 273 8255. Dr. Alfie Breland Noble, psychologist, founder of the Acoma Project. Crisis Text Line is one of the most well-known mental health support lines. It uses artificial intelligence to help people who are struggling with mental health. New reports from Politico's Crisis Text Line is sharing data it collects with its online text conversations with its for-profit spinoff, Loris AI. The company says the info's made anonymous, so people can't be identified, but is it going too far anyway? With us is Tim Ryerson, former Crisis Text Line volunteer, starting a public campaign to try to change the data practices. Tim, thanks for being here. So, yeah, on the face of it, it doesn't sound great, right? People going through something, reaching out for help. And then what kind of data gets sent over and to do what with? Help some sort of customer service operation? Well, yes, that's the um, the purpose of Loris AI. And it was, it was created with the idea of taking the, you know, the, the um, what is learned from, from these conversations with people in crisis. And there have been about a million people since 2013 who have um, used the service and been benefited by it, talking to volunteers and, and, um, you know, going from a moment of, of extreme crisis of, um, you know, panic, um, just not having the services that they need available to them and, and being able to just find a moment of, of, calm of a little bit more calm it takes about an hour for these conversations to run their course and so after you've had that much experience um using now these are common techniques that that all crisis lines use and and people use to um you know in in mental health field it's things like validation um active listening and so you you, what you have is a lot of information about uh, confirming that these these techniques work. Um, so the, all of those conversations, what Crisis Text Line has done is stored them in the form of transcripts and data. And there are um, there are programs that can be run to remove personal information, such as the name and the phone. Number. Okay, but, but but I want to cut to the chase. So so what is it that you're alleging actually happens then with that material? There there's two things really. One is that if if you sat in the space with a person who is distraught and you've walked them through, helped them find their way, you it, it is a fragile um you know, that is a highly personal sensitive moment and the idea of taking that information and using it to build some other kind of software for for a profit is it just kind of made my stomach hurt when i first found out about it it just felt wrong okay so if some of the trackable data is gone maybe it's you know 
up to legal muster or whatever, but ethically a problem. The, the biggest problem is that how do you get consent for that? Because when a person is, I mean, if you did that, you would think you would need to have consent, right? For the, the people that are involved. Um, how do you ask for consent or it would just be inappropriate to ask someone for, for consent at that moment. Do, do they ask for consent? I imagine, do I have to sign something before I get into the conversation? But then again, if I'm in this vulnerable place, I'm going to say yes, just so I can connect to the text line. I'm not going to read the 10 pages of whatever they send me. That's exactly right. There is a, there's a terms of service and privacy agreement. And as you, when you text in, you, you'll have that, um, message given to you and by continuing you're agreeing to it well i had one out of 200 about 200 people that i had the the honor of 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 speaking with only one ever said hey what is this i can't i don't have i can't possibly deal with this terms of service and they they bailed out on the conversation let me ask you uh this uh in fairness to the company and then respond to it uh because it's our understanding that you were let go fired by crisis text line after you started to raise this awareness and we did reach out to the company for comment we didn't hear back but the company's general counsel has told political Politico, as I'm sure you know, that you were fired for violating a code of conduct. How do you respond to that? No, I did not violate the code of conduct. And um, so that I, I was terminated because I shared an opinion paper that I prepared, which outlined my concerns. I tried to work for reform inside the company, and it became clear to me that that this model, this financial model was entrenched. And uh, so they told me, if you take the step of sharing this letter, which I was open with them about, that I would be terminated. So they, they just carried through on that promise. And I did try to share it. But that I really don't want to, um, that to be the issue because I'm feeling the weight of, of those million people. And the next million who need to use this this is a very good um resource it's it's vital that this service be available and continue and all the volunteers there's about 6000 active volunteers right now they're wonderful they do a wonderful job the techniques work the service is in itself needs to continue and be supported but the the ethics surrounding the data just are um unacceptable Tim Ryerson, former crisis text line volunteer, starting this uh, public campaign to try to change those data practices. Tim, thanks for talking to us. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So the pictures of the uh, NFC Championship game. Rams won. Of all the celebrities, and the governor and the mayor, Garcetti, also London Breed. So the San Francisco mayor yeah. did it too. Pictures with no masks. And then, as we were remarking, if you watch the telecast, it was mostly like NFL-employed people that were wearing masks. And then everybody else... They pretty much weren't, even well, though the rules say you got it. It's a large mega event, right? Yes. Indoor, outside, wear your mask. Pretty clear. Governor Newsom says he was judicious and wore his mask the rest of the time. 
Well, now, L.A. County Supervisor Catherine Barger is calling for a reevaluation of mask rules in the county. The supervisor joins us now. Thanks for being with us. So you're uh, ready to wave the white flag of surrender about masks, are you? No, I mean, I approached this at our Tuesday board meeting briefly with Dr. Ferrer. I felt that with the vaccination rate in L.A. County at 78 percent, we are the strictest county in the state of California as it relates to masking requirements. And knowing that the state is planning on reevaluating on February 15th their overall mask mandate, I felt that it was time for us to look at aligning with the state. And then seeing what happened yesterday, you know, it's clear to me that the masking rules, you know, uh, are in place, but individuals are choosing to mask up based on their calculated personal risk. And so I felt that the time is now because we're going to have the Super Bowl next Sunday, same number of people going into the stadium. And uh, I just believe that we should be clear and consistent with how we are applying this. And again, in the, in the, county, of California, in the county of Los Angeles, we are far stricter than the state. Okay, so personal decision time, and maybe we scale it down from large events to, you know, the elevator. You wear your N95 if you don't feel safe, and then if the guy next to you doesn't have his on, that would be fine? Well, it, obviously, in a, in a small, confined space like that, um, I believe that, that masks are appropriate. But at SoFi Stadium, which is, you know, outdoors, other than when you're in the suites, um, I, don't, I just feel that what you saw yesterday was an example of people First of all, you know, it's, it's one of those things where um, I'm just as guilty as an elected. When people want their picture taken, I'm outside. I'll take off my mask and put it back on. So I'm not going to judge on that. But when I looked at the stadium, the people in the stadium, three-quarters of them were not wearing their mask. And um, it's clear to me that I didn't hear an uproar coming from public health today about the sky is falling. And that tells me that um, there is not this issue as it relates to the science-backed um, uh, conclusion that wearing a mask outdoors is necessary. Is it, is it another ounce of prevention? Obviously, yes. You know, I had Omicron. I wear my mask. I got it. Um, but at the same time, the numbers are coming down. Um, we saw a peak, and now it's coming down. And I think it's time for us to really reevaluate and, quite frankly, just align with the state. So, so if you had to rewrite uh, the rules for the county very concisely, how would they appear? What would you say? Well, obviously, they'd be, they would be aligned exactly with what the state mandate is now, which would, which would make an effect um, at large venues. But I don't think SoFi would have fallen into that category. L.A. County took it one step further. But aligned with the state, right now you've got the state requirement, then you've got the county's requirement. And the county does with these mega, with these mega venues require a mandate mask. Or at least we tell them to do it. We don't enforce it, which is a whole other issue. You think this would all be different if we actually enforce this? If, you know, there were fines, no, I, if people were getting in trouble, would they have these things on? No, I mean, if you look at what I said today, I don't think the state should wait until February 15th. Recognizing that the Super Bowl is coming here on February 13th, I don't want the same thing to happen next week that happened yesterday. And that is that we say everyone has to wear a mask. And then when you get in the stadium, all bets are off. You don't have to wear a mask. If, again, it were that serious an infraction, public health would have issued a statement today saying, we're very disappointed. People should have been wearing masks. The numbers are going to go up. The sky is falling. That is not the case. It's been crickets. Well, I, I mean, that, that could also be, I mean, the absence of any verbiage from them doesn't necessarily mean agreement, does it? It could also mean that they're recognizing a political and economic reality and are therefore not inclined to bucket. 
No, as someone who was chair when COVID first hit, um, they are, the, when, when there are strong beliefs, especially coming out of public health, um, they are very vocal on um, bringing that to the attention of the public. So I, I don't think that it's like, well, you know, they didn't say anything, but they are concerned. Again, I think that um, yesterday was an example of people truly, you have, to, you have to be vaccinated to get into the stadium or show a test that you're negative, um, which is not a perfect science, by the way. But at the same time, um, people were willing to show their vaccination cards to get into the SoFi Stadium, and enforcement was not done there. And there was nothing today saying, um, fasten your seatbelt, the numbers are going to go up. I've heard nothing from public health. L.A. County Supervisor Catherine Barger. A ticket to the Super Bowl, always expensive. If you want to watch football's biggest spectacle in person, you better be prepared to pay a lot of Money. Yeah, even more this year. Seat Geeks is the yeah. average ticket for the Rams Bengals game in two weeks itself. I going for more than ten grand on the platform. It is a record. Uh, Chris Layden, Seat Geeks Director of Consumer Strategy. So, Chris, um, why so expensive? I mean, we expect it to be expensive. It is the Super Bowl. It's the biggest game. But uh, is it is it different this year because they go up every year, or because it's L.A. or what? Yeah, I think it's it's probably a little bit of both. Um, I, I, and honestly, I think the LA factor here is is very real. So if we kind of look back at Super Bowls of past, you know, if they're in Atlanta or Minneapolis or, or Miami, we always see kind of no matter who the teams are that are playing, that we get a lot of demand from LA. You know, it's always one of, if I were to say, you know, there's kind of five markets that always dominate Super Bowl tickets, the host city, the two teams, and then New York and LA. So the fact that this year, LA is on that list normally, Plus, you've got one of the teams from L.A. and it's the host city. You've kind of got all three of those factors coming together. And so, yeah, we, we're really seeing kind of record high prices right now. They have come down a little bit in the past 24 hours. Um, but, you know, we're still looking at an average resale price of, of north of $10,000, as you mentioned. So is there any difference between this and ticket scalping? Um, I don't think, I'm not sure uh, ticket scalping isn't a term we really hear too much anymore, but in essence, if you think of the Super Bowl, there's, there's a lot of people who actually have access to tickets, whether it's a league sponsor, or in fact, you know, I'm not sure the, the most up-to-date data on this, but I believe in the past, at least every NFL player, I think got two tickets to the game. And you can imagine if you're an NFL player and you're not playing in this game, you probably don't want to be there. Um, so you end up seeing is you kind of see people who have access to tickets and they say, mm, I don't want to be there. And there's some fan who really, really, really wants to be there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to sell my ticket. And, and so what you end up seeing is a lot of folks who this is really kind of their their dream event. Right. And, and the Bengals fans are a perfect example in this scenario. You know, team hasn't made the Super Bowl in 30 years. Um, there's plenty of people, Bengals fans, they've never seen their team in the Super Bowl in their lifetime. You know, this could be a once in a lifetime moment. And, and that's why you kind of see such you know, in-demand prices is because it really is is quite the experience. Oh, yeah. So Bengals fans, obviously, Rams fans, mm -hmm. they want to go because they're in it because they hope they win. But what about people who just want to go because it's Super Bowl, but they don't really care about the teams? Uh, earlier I said, oh, so you can put on Instagram. But how much of a factor do you think that actually is? Like, this is the land of influencers. So anybody who's almost anybody or trying to be somebody is probably going to try and get a ticket just so they can use going to the Super Bowl as like an inflating my personal brand thing. I was at the Super Bowl. Look at me. Yeah. I mean, I, I do actually think that that's a factor this year. Uh, it's, it's funny because I was kind of joking about it. And the more, you know, internally here and the more I thought about it, the more I think it, it really does play a role. Um, you see even on the broadcast yesterday of yesterday's game, you know, all the celebrities that are at that game as well. And so, you know, it's definitely going to be the place to be. 
Um, and I can only imagine in LA, a, a market where, you know, everybody wants to be at that place to be, it's, it's going to be really serious there. Whereas, you know, in a city like Minneapolis, for example, you're just not going to have that factor at play. So I think that's why, you know, we saw a lot of, of, you know, interest in buying tickets even before the matchup was set. And to me that that's a good indicator that, you know, a lot of people don't care who the teams are. They just want to be at the Super Bowl. Of course, the $10,000 ticket makes the headlines, but but we're not talking about the majority of tickets, obviously. I mean, what's the average price? So no, the $10,000 is the average. So to kind of give you so a that range. So is the what, average. Yeah. So to give you a range of what people are kind of paying right now, you can get in the door right now for just under $7,000 a ticket. And that'll put you kind of up in the, in the 500 level. If you want to sit right behind the benches right now, you're paying you know, $30,000 a ticket. Um, and, and that'll come with some benefits. You know, you might get access to some VIP areas, but yeah, there, there's a, there is a wide range, but that $10,000 is what we're seeing. So every, average so person have you is. picked which one you want? Charles? Yeah. <laughs> I want, I want upper five. corner for yeah, six grand or so, so everybody, so, so everybody that we see in the stadium during the Super Bowl sitting in the seat, uh, has a lot of money clearly because they can afford well, those kind of tickets. Yes to, you know, for, for the people who buy those on the secondary market, there are the lucky folks who enter. I think the NFL still does a lottery for some subset of tickets. There are the lucky folks who enter that lottery and win. And then you've also got, you know, I think the NFL typically distributes some tickets to the host team and the teams playing in the game, obviously in the ramp scenario, that's, that's the same. Um, and so you'll have some of their season ticket holders will also get access to tickets. So not everybody, um, but it, it certainly is a, a hot ticket. The guys who have gone like, you know, for 50 years where we always see them in the pregame show and they do a little vignette on them. <laughs> are, are they getting tickets by now or do they still have to buy them every year? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I've never dug deep enough into our data to look for that. You would hope that uh, if, you know, they're they're on TV they're you know, the NFL can use them as a marketing campaign. You'd hope that the NFL maybe uh, hooks them up in that case. But are all these tickets, these expensive tickets, are you had mentioned, you know, somebody who's in the game and they have a couple of tickets and so they sell them for maybe 10 grand a, a piece? Or, or are there large corporations behind buying up these tickets in mass and then selling them at huge amounts of money? Yeah. So, you know, there is sometimes kind of a, you know, if you're a player, you don't go sell your ticket directly. You might sell it to somebody else. But it, it really is kind of a mix of of inventory. And it, it's, you know, at SeatGeek, we're kind of just the marketplace. So it's hard for us to really tell where the tickets are originating from. Um, you know, it, it's a little bit tough for us to judge. Is there going to be rise and fall? Is there usually a little bit? You said they've come down a, a, a tiny bit over the last, you know, day. Do we expect maybe a prime time or are you just going to pay this, you know, next week too? So if you really want to go, sorry, yeah. pay 10 grand. That's an excellent question. We always see the market act actually fairly dynamically kind of in this two week span between the matchup being set and the day of the game. Historically, it almost always probably, you know, five out of six times it would drop. Um, the, the interesting factor is that two years ago, obviously last year, the COVID kind of impacted everything, but two years ago, the market actually went up leading up to the game. And so the advice we give folks, you know, for this game, but really for any ticket on the secondary market is, you know, if you're comfortable with the prices now, which obviously they're pretty steep right now, but if you're comfortable with the prices now, you should act now because there is a possibility they get more expensive. But on the flip side, if you're, you know, you can't afford this, it is worth checking back because sometimes we will see prices drop you know, 40, 50 percent between sort of the day the match yeah. was set and the actual day of the game. You know, Chris, investigators will probably tell you that big money often translates into big crime. Is there much fraud with these tickets? How does somebody who's shelling out 10 grand a ticket know they're getting the real thing? 
Yes. And, uh, you know, the NFL has done really an excellent job of kind of um, moving in the direction that that fraud just for Super Bowl tickets is is not really a thing anymore. And they were pretty early. You know, these are, you know, if you think of a physical ticket and a lot of these now are just barcodes they're not even physical tickets, you know, you'll get them on your phone. But if you think of the physical tickets a few years ago, they had all the security embedded into the ticket to confirm that it's a real authentic ticket. Um, so, you know, the the type of fraud we see around this now is more people on, on kind of less, you know, safe, more shady websites claiming to have Super Bowl tickets. Folks buy the, you know, we always tell people Craigslist is not the place to buy your Super Bowl <laughs> ticket. You, know, you want to buy somewhere that has kind of that trust and, and guarantee behind it. Um, but the NFL has done really a nice job of of kind of securing Super Bowl tickets for fans so that they do feel confident when they're buying on those um, more legitimate sites. Chris Layden, Seat Geeks Director of Consumer Strategy. That's it for today. We'll see you tomorrow, 1 p.m.